there's some judgment calls that you're going to have to make where, for example, if you want to charge based on per user, but your product isn't really great for per user pricing, you might actually hinder people from adding more people to the product and therefore your retention is going to suffer. From ProfitWell Recur, it's Protect the Hustle, where we explore the truth behind the strategy and tactics of B2B SaaS growth to make you an outstanding operator. On today's episode, we're diving deep on pricing strategy. Patrick, take it away. All right, everybody, welcome back. Another episode of Protect the Hustle. Voice you're hearing is Patrick Campbell, CEO, founder of ProfitWell. A couple of housekeeping items. I am traveling, so apologies for the, the poor audio quality. I know Ben, our production producer, is going to yell at me for it, but the nice microphone is buried deep in the trunk right now, and I'll try to get it back out for everybody at some point here. But uh, a couple other action items here. Um, I've been thinking about finally raising money for ProfitWell. We have been uh, customer-funded, bootstrapped up until this point. Uh, the market is out of control, and so I feel kind of like an idiot. I'm fiscally irresponsible for not raising. Probably is just the insecure kind of vulnerability and emotions here, but would love kind of anyone's take. Good idea, terrible idea. Um, we're not against raising money, and we're not against you know staying customer funded. It's just one of those things that uh, that's that's really interesting given the market right now. Um, also, you know, just on the travel bug, I'm going to be going back to Utah via via car from Florida. Uh, so I'll be stopping in New Orleans, Houston, Austin, Denver, a couple of other places. So if you're in those areas and you want to safely hang out, uh, let me know. Yeah, with that, let's jump into it. I, I'm going to be talking through pricing strategy here. And more specifically, I'm going to be talking through kind of a compact guide to pricing strategy. I, I wrote this post a little while back. Uh, for Lenny's newsletter, and Lenny, if you guys don't know, he's a kind of a you know kind of perennial uh, growth person, kind of in the world here, and um, he's got this really popular newsletter. Asked me to write a post on pricing. I did so, and it's one of kind of the the most comprehensive yet compact posts that I've written. And so I kind of want to talk through the thoughts from there. And if you go to protectthehustle.com, you can actually get all of the graphs and everything like that that I'm going to reference, um, and also sign up to get the the email where you don't even have to leave the email to get all of the information. But we're going to be talking through this um, mainly because, as, as a lot of you know, if you've listened to anything that I've put out in the past you know couple of years, you know pricing is one of those topics that sits kind of at the nexus of both uncomfortable and long term. And because of that, a lot of companies, they don't think about it often enough um, and they don't adjust this growth lever until it's not quite it's too late, but they just don't take advantage of this growth lever. And even when they eventually figure it out, they don't really like touch it you know, regularly. And the reason for that is because a lot of us, we think that pricing is just a single point. We think it's just a number. Monetization is just how much you actually charge. When in reality, it's so, so much more than that. And, and the best companies in the world, they're adjusting pricing and monetization probably once every quarter, if not every single month. And a lot of you are thinking to, to the point that I just made, oh my gosh, they're they're changing their price every three months. Their customers and prospects must be aggravated. And that's that's not really what's happening. And, and that's the first lesson here, as, as I kind of already alluded to, it's so much more than the number. And to explain that, let's let's go to kind of a 30,000 foot or a 30,000 meter view um, for, for a lot of the folks outside of the U.S. here who listen and, and, and watch. No matter the business you're in, it doesn't matter what business you're in, B2B, SaaS, retail, DSC, nonprofit, you're creating some sort of value. And because we don't trade goats for wheat in most of the economies that we play in, you're ascribing some sort of unit of measurement to that value. And that's your price, Right. 
So your price is the exchange rate on the value that you've created. And I know that sounds super fluffy and super high level, but that's the premise that I think a lot of us need to start from because your price then has a lot of influences on it because anything that influences the perceived value of your product is all of a sudden going to actually influence what that, that perception is and ultimately what that conversion looks like. And that means everything in your business from your sales and your marketing all the way down to your product and finance teams is used to either drive someone to a point of conversion or to justify and defend the product or the price that you're offering. And so there's a lot of things that influence this, but three really big ones that a lot of people, you know, kind of kind of don't realize. And if you notice what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to expand your knowledge of what actually is involved with monetization. But first, there's the segment or the vertical that you're targeting, who you're targeting. Um, you can go up market and all of a sudden they have higher willingness to pay. You can go down market and go for a volume play. Um, you can shift the vertical that you're going after. So all of a sudden you start selling to, you know, soccer moms and dads and they're willing to pay for your product a lot more, a lot differently than when you were selling to auto mechanics. Um, you can also just change the ideal customer that you target, you know, entirely. The second big thing here is your products, your features, um, your positioning, your packaging. All of these things influence that value heavily because you can not only come out with new features, but you can move features to different tiers. You can pull features out and make them add-ons. Um, you can change up your value propositions. There's a whole host of things you can do to actually influence that value perception. And then, of course, there's the actual number. The final big piece here is the actual number. Um, if you move that price up or down, obviously, it's going to impact conversion, but it also impacts the perception of your brand. If I am a, a, a you know premium brand, but my price to the customer that I'm going after is perceived as too cheap, it doesn't matter if they're willing to pay for it. They're just not going to go because they don't trust your product. And these are not the only axes out there when it comes to pricing, but the point that I'm trying to make here is that you have dozens of different things that you can be doing to experiment with monetization. I think that the big thing that we always fixate on is the actual number. And for most of us, I would argue when it comes to prowess, your number that you're charging probably doesn't matter as much as all of the other things. And what I mean by that is, is you should be figuring out, am I a $10 product, a $100 product, a $1,000 product? Don't waste time debating, am I a $500 product or am I a $505 product? Because that probably doesn't matter as much as the other pieces we're going to talk about in terms of foundation. And so stop fixating on that. And the two really big things I think you should fixate on, and I'm going to give you an order of operations after this that you can go through, the two biggest things, your value metric and your ideal customer profile and segments. These are the two things that you should worry about. And until you have these figured out, don't worry about all the other hackish things that you can be doing to improve your pricing. And we're going to talk more deeply about both of these. The first one here is determining your value metric. A value metric is essentially what you charge for. Could be per seat, per thousand visits, per CPA, per gigabyte used, per transactions. It could be a whole host of things. And just to give you a couple of examples of different value metrics, um, Wistia, they are a video hosting and analytics platform. They charge by the number of videos or channels that you use. Um, Zapier, they help you connect different apps and, and do run different tasks amongst those apps and those integrations. Um, they invented their value metric. It's the concept of a zap, basically connections of software. They charge based on you know how often those apps are used. Uh, there's a theater in Barcelona. It's a, a comedy theater where they actually put a camera on the seat in front of you and they measure how often you laugh. And then based on how often you laugh, that's how much they charge you. Husqvarna, maker of lawn care equipment. Instead of charging you just to buy the actual lawnmower or the lawn care equipment, they charge you how much time you actually use it. Uh, Rolls-Royce, um, particularly their airplane engine division, they basically charge you um, based on the number of miles. So when you're flying in that airplane, 
the brand that you're flying, if they're using Rolls-Royce engines, doesn't actually own those engines. Those engines are still owned by Rolls-Royce and they charge based on mileage and that means they do all of the maintenance. Um, even Fresh Patch, um, another company out there, they charge you based on the amount of grass that you want delivered for your dog, basically to put on your balcony if you don't have a yard so that your dog can have some grass to play on or you know to, to use the bathroom with. But these are some examples of value metrics. And, and to kind of you know not bury the lead, if you get everything else wrong but your value metric right, you end up doing okay. It's that important. It's one of the most important pieces out there. And this is mainly because it bakes lower churn and higher expansion revenue into your monetization. And I'll explain that a bit more in a second. But the basic idea is, is that your value metric, when you charge based on some sort of metric, you ensure that you don't charge a giant customer the same price as you charge a small customer. And how does this work? Well, if you remember back to your high school or your college economics class, um, your professor or teacher, he or she drew a demand curve, you know, the curve that basically, you know, they draw the X and Y axis and then the curve goes from high on the left down to low on the right. And then basically along the Y axis, the vertical axis, that was price, right? So he or she marks a point on that curve, that line, which was your price point and basically shaded in everything underneath that particular curve and said, okay, this is your revenue if you charged $6 a month or $6 for this product, right? And then this is the quantity you're going to sell, right? And all these visuals are in the actual post at protectthehustle.com or the email that you receive. But basically, you only have one price point. Well, a lot of price practitioners that came along and they said, oh, hey, you should have more than one price point, right? And this is where good, better, best pricing came, right? Where you basically had three price points, right? So we're going to have a high price point for the high-end people. We're going to have the mid price point, hopefully to capture as many people as possible. And then we're going to have the low price point, which is going to capture our, our, our tire kickers or the people who are just going to come in and like see what's going on, right? And all of a sudden that was good, better, best because now your revenue expanded because you basically shaded in all of the extra bars underneath that curve and that was extra revenue. Well, what a value metric does is basically puts infinite or seemingly infinite points on that curve. So if someone wants 1,000 seats, they're paying a different price than someone who wants 999, and that's a different price than the person who just wants five seats. Someone just called me during the podcast. Ben, I don't know if you're going to leave this in there, but someone just called me. And what's brilliant about some of this new sales call software is basically they will, when you hit stop calling me or like ignore, they just immediately recall and they do it three different times. And I just want to sometimes pick up the phone and say, Hey, if you continue to call me, I will never buy your product ever. But anyways, <laughs> value metrics also bake growth directly into how you charge because as usage or the amount of value received goes up, they pay you more. And as usage or value goes down, they pay you less. And this is why companies using value metrics typically grow at about double the rate as those who aren't using value metrics. Uh, they have half the churn, um, typically half the cancellations, and they have 2x the expansion revenue. It bakes growth directly into how you make money. So how do you figure out your value metric? Well, that's, that's the age-old question. And so the first step is, what is the ideal essence of value for your product? And I know that sounds really, really fluffy, but what is, what is like the purest form of value you're providing? That's the first step is to think through that. So in B2B, it's likely you saving money, gaining money, time saved, time is time earned for your actual customer, right? In a consumer business, it could be the joy you bring them, the fitness achieved, the efficiency that they get. It could be a whole host of things. The point is, it doesn't have to necessarily be perfect at this stage, but the first step is, what is the perfect measure of value? Now, when you've come up with that, if you can measure it and your customer trusts your measurement, that's how you should charge. 
you have the ideal pure value metric for your business. So to give you an example, Profitwell Retain, um, it's our churn recovery product. Basically, we charge and we can measure how much churn, how many cancellations do we prevent and how much churn do we recover. Our customer can agree to that measurement and then therefore we can charge based on that amount. Um, there's other companies out there, Main Street, who just raised a bunch of money. They basically help you get uh, tax credits. They can measure how many tax credits they get for you and they work for you. Then they can also basically make sure they take a percentage of that and you trust them. Now, most of us aren't going to be able to use value metrics that are pure, uh, probably about 10% of us. And that number is going up, particularly as billing systems get better and better. But for most of us, what we're going to next do is take that value metric and take a step back and find a proxy for it. So for HubSpot, their marketing product we'll speak about particularly, their pure value metric is the amount of revenue that their tool drives for your business. And this is really hard to measure, and it's also hard for the customer to agree to because how much credit does HubSpot basically get for any revenue that this blog post or this podcast episode brings in? It's hard because I did the work, I wrote the blog post, I did the recording, our production team put everything together. Um, and so it's hard, right? So proxies then for HubSpot are things like the number of contacts that we have, the number of visits that we bring in, the number of users. That's a good proxy for the value because it's measurable. They can get me to agree to it. Um, and also they can kind of, you know, basically measure it. Everyone can kind of measure the value they're getting. So to find the right proxy metric, I typically recommend you come up with five to 10 proxies for whatever that pure value metric is. And you'll start to notice that there's like one to two of them that are, are probably most preferred. Um, and I would go to you know your customers and I would basically figure out and ask them some of these max diff questions and I can share some resources if anyone's interested and in how to actually measure this. And, and I would go out and I'd say, hey, we got these five ways that we can charge. What's the most preferred way that we could charge? What's the least preferred? And you'll start to get some answers. Um, and there's some other things that you want to do. I probably want to measure willingness to pay and just make sure people who have more of this metric are willing to pay more than those who have less than this metric. I probably also want to kind of look at a histogram analysis and, and I'll do a deeper post on value metrics in, in, in a bit. But the basic idea is, is that I, I want to find that, that ideal proxy. And I also want to make sure that this metric encourages retention. It doesn't discourage retention. So there's some judgment calls that you're going to have to make where, for example, if you want to charge based on per user, but your product isn't really great for per user pricing, you might actually hinder people from adding more people to the product and therefore your retention is going to suffer. And to give you an example, when we look at HubSpots, if they were primarily to price on number of seats, number of users, uh, basically anyone could share a login and HubSpot wouldn't really make much more money on their larger customers versus their small. And ironically, they wouldn't get as many people invested into HubSpot because there'd be friction to adding additional seats. Now, instead, if they gave unlimited users and price based on number of contacts, there's minimal friction to getting as many people to HubSpot as possible to do activities, blog posts, emails, et cetera, that then produce contacts. So the result here is when we look at HubSpot, it makes sense for them to use something like number of contacts. It ensures that growth is baked directly into how they make money. And this usage metric, it drives the metric to which therein drives revenue. And most importantly, customers, small, medium, and large, are all paying at the point that they see value and they can then grow. And there's a lot of nuances here. So I know that some of you are going to be like, well, what about this? Or what about that? The important points that I would say is don't try to be everything to all people. There are definitely customers out there that have low number of contacts, but the value per contact is very high. It's just there's a lot more people out there where more contacts means the value goes up. And that's what HubSpot goes after. The other thing is, is can you use multiple value metrics? Um, yeah, you can, but you have to be careful depending on your sales model and the sophistication of your buyer. If you're selling to a developer or something like AWS, 
I can use a lot of really complicated value metrics. If I'm selling them to um, a marketing person who isn't really technical, I probably can't get away with more than two value metrics because it gets really, really confusing. So I'll go deeper on value metrics. If you have any questions on these specifically, I'm going to be writing a, a pretty deep kind of post on, on value metrics in a bit. Um, just reply to, to the email. And if you're not on the email, just go to protecthustle.com and sign up and then you can, you can email me. Now, the other big piece of pricing um, here that, that heavily influences success or failure. And the thing I wanted to be super clear on, if you get your value metric right, and I don't know if I said this, but it bears repeating, but you get everything else wrong, you tend to actually end up being okay. And so that's a really big thing to think about. That's why it's so important to focus on that first. And the other thing is, is going after your ideal customer profile and segment. And I get that you have heard about personas. I get that you've heard about segments. There's so many of you who still don't do anything around this concept. And that, that's what sucks. And I, I'm a big proponent of basically just getting a spreadsheet out. And I don't even care if you're going to collect the data. I think you should collect data at some point, but I think you got to get a spreadsheet out over the columns, put whoever the customer profiles you're targeting. Um, and there's a template included with the post that you can check out, but these can take many forms. Um, you can separate them out based on size, meaning marketing leaders at small companies, medium companies, large companies. You can separate it out based on roles. So marketing leaders, sales leaders, et cetera. You can do both, you know, marketing leaders at this size, sales leaders at this size, so on and so forth but the columns are specifically the profiles. Now along the rows, I wanna basically fill out what are kind of the, the firmographics or demographics of each of these folks. How do I know when I found them? Um, what are the acquisition numbers? What are the value propositions that resonate with them? What are the features that resonate them? What's the pricing I can expect? What is the willingness to pay? What are my unit economics, either guessing or actually known? But the point is, is that I wanna have this central constitution within my customer base where I can basically look at, hey, these are the people we're targeting, these are the people we're building for, and if they're not on this list or they don't exist, then we're not doing something. We're not, we're not going after them, right? And once you have this, and the reason that you have this is that remember, everything you're doing is driving a customer to a point of conversion or justifying the product or the price. If you don't know who that customer is, you don't know who that segment is, you don't know how to build for them. There's no way you're going to be able to have an efficient funnel or flywheel, let alone an efficient pricing page, let alone an efficient pricing strategy. And so it's that important. And it's not going to ever be perfect. And this is the thing. A lot of people, they think, well, it's not going to be perfect. We're like, there's this like one lead that we occasionally get that, you know, comes in is worth a lot of money. And like that defies this entire paradigm. It's like, yeah, I know the paradigm. There's always things that defy a paradigm, but the paradigm is there for the 95% of the time that you're getting leads to the door. And if you're just starting out, you don't have data on these things, or you're not necessarily going to have the budget to go validate these things, that's fine. It's okay because you know something about your customers. It's just get it down on some sort of virtual piece of paper here. Now, you should then go validate and invalidate these different pieces, like particularly the most pressing pieces within this sheet, depending on the decisions you're going to make. So if you're going to change up your price point, probably want to start by validating willingness to pay. Now, if you don't know who your key roles or segments are, like it's going to be really, really hard to have that efficient flywheel. So you want to make sure that you're actually doing some of this validation. There's a lot of things that we've talked about with here, but um, just to give you kind of an example here, you don't want to fall prey to being just a complete idiot when it comes to who you're targeting. And it's really easy to because you have this vision and you're confident in your vision because you're, you're crazy enough to think that this is going to work, right? And that's what makes it beautiful is that you're pushing forward not only as an entrepreneur, but also as an executive. 
the problem is is that if we don't validate that vision, oftentimes we 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 miss out on something that we didn't know about. So to give you an example, when we built Profile Metrics, which is our free subscription metrics tool, I thought we were geniuses who were going to be billionaires, right? You know, and it turns out that building analytics <laughs> is a terrible, terrible business. Willingness to pay for them is terrible. Retention for analytics products is terrible. NPS typically is terrible. Everything is typically just terrible, mainly because customers don't appreciate, you know, graphs, or at least they aren't willing to pay much for them. And when we did our research, we basically found out that we were completely wrong in how we were thinking. And it put us 18 months ahead of our com competitors because they were just guessing and checking their way to success rather than actually doing the research and pushing things forward. And so that's what led us to eventually give away profitable metrics for free because we were either going to shut it down, give it away for free, um, or ultimately trying to go up market, which is some, what some of our competitors have done. But it's one of those things that that customer research shouldn't be under underestimated. Um, particularly when it comes to understanding what's going on with who you're targeting. And a lot of people go, well, they're never really going to tell me what they want. These, these are just like really crappy excuses. Like if, if, if we basically weren't going to do research, there would be nothing around us. There would be no scientific progress. There would be no like business push forward. And yes, you're never truly going to absolutely know 100% if something works until you do it. But the point of research isn't to know with certainty if something's going to happen or not. It's to reduce and hedge risk. And if I'm making a $10 million decision, let alone a $100 million decision, I want to make sure I do some research so I don't just you know, shoot from the hip, as they say, and all of a sudden you know, make a $100 million mistake or $10 million mistake or even a $1 million mistake where it could have been avoided by doing some basic research in the market. I think this comes from people thinking that everything needs to be perfect. Research is never perfect, and it doesn't mean you don't do it. Attribution is never going to be perfect. doesn't mean you don't try to do it. doesn't mean you don't, you don't get a basic understanding. But that's the big thing. Understand those segments. Now, in terms of like going forward, the, the next thing, and, and this is where it's going to break apart a little bit because it's going to be a little bit more general, this comes down to user research and, ex and experimentation. Um, so beyond your value metric and core segments, so those two really big points that we talked about, the monetization game, it becomes extremely tactical and research-based. You want to figure out your price point. Um, you want to figure out those segments. You want to figure out your discounting, your add-on strategy, your packaging strategy. It's something that's never finished because, again, it's at the very essence of translating your value into an optimal framework for your target customer segments. And so practically, this means you should be experimenting something about your pricing every single quarter. And I'm going to give you a little bit of an order of operations here in a second. But here's, here's basically a list to go through. So priority one, um, these are the foundational pieces. Who are you targeting, at least even in a general sense, what's your value metric? Those are the two big things that we just talked through. Priority two, this gets into what is the order of magnitude price point, meaning are you a $10 product, a $500 product, et cetera, your positioning and your value props, and your packaging. So positioning and value props is like what best communicates what we're doing. Uh, packaging what should the feature differentiation look like? Should we have this as an add-on? Should we not? Should we include it with this tier? What are the things that are actually driving willingness to pay with our product? Prior to three optimizations, this next, next bucket, things like add-ons, specific price points, are you a $10 product versus an $11 product? Uh, price localization, internationalization, discounting strategy, contract term optimization. These are all things that get into more and more practical pieces. And if you're in like a very like highly political environment, aka if you're a company that has you know more than 100 team members, 
you might want to actually start with one of these like priority three optimizations, not because you're going to get the biggest lift, but mainly because it, they're easier projects to go through uh, with all the stakeholders involved than going through, you know, trying to trying to like really go through like something that's super, super complicated. And then the fourth priority is typically things like these growth accelerators. So market expansion, going up market or down market, vertical expansion, which vertical should we go after, multi-product, freemium, these types of things. Your actual order of operations here, it's going to vary a little bit, but for most companies, this is the order that I recommend going through. You know, and obviously if there's a fire or you're larger and you have some of these things established, obviously you can skip around a little bit. But this is kind of the, the way that I would look at things. And, and the biggest thing that I would recommend is, is really, really starting small. You can and always should obviously do more. Um, so that's a really, really big thing to kind of think about. And here's some, some rapid fire. So that, that's kind of like overall, like some good foundations. Obviously, we didn't go deep into everything. But again, this is supposed to be a compact guide. Let me know if you want to go deeper into anything in particular, but here's some common questions and some, some rapid fire data and all of the data and graphs. I'm not going to be able to go through them in, in, um, in detail kind of on the audio version of this. So make sure you sign up at protectthehustle.com or, um, you know, just find me on Twitter or something like that. I'm more than happy to kind of share some information, but here's some rapid fire. So first up, uh, localization of your pricing is huge. Uh, so revenue per customer is 30% higher when you just use the proper currency. Um, you probably shouldn't localize until you have like 20 to 30% or more of your of your customers coming from somewhere outside of your home region. But doing a region-based localization pushes that 30% gain um, even further, meaning you have a different price point in different regions. Uh, but localization is huge. And it's mainly huge just because we all have different densities. Um, we all have different densities. We all have different you know, willingnesses to pay. We all have different costs of living in our different regions. Um, so something to just think through. Um, second big point here, uh, I get a lot of questions on freemium. Freemium is an acquisition model. It's not a part of your pricing. You want to think about freemium as a premium ebook that drives leads, not another pricing tier. Uh, and I'm a big fan of do not do freemium until you truly understand how to convert leads to customers, because you're just going to end up with a bunch of noise and false positives um, when you're trying to figure out your kind of beachheads. Um, the best folks I see, they typically are about two to three years into their business before they have, you know, some sort of freemium plan. And there are exceptions here. If you have a product that needs some network effect, if you have a top 50 growth person on your team, um, it, it's just a scalpel. It's not a sledgehammer. And when you do have freemium, just to be clear, though, uh, you typically have much better NPS for those customers who converted from free versus those who converted from sales. You have better retention for the same bucket, and you typically have much, much lower CAC, customer acquisition costs. Third big point, uh, value propositions, they matter so much more than you think they do. Plus or minus 20 to 15%, depending on the industry, when it comes to willingness to pay. So put another way, if you have a certain value proposition, you might diminish your willingness to pay by 15%. In other value propositions, you might increase your willingness to pay by 15%. Um, and so it's just, it's just important to get those right. Fourth thing, don't discount over 20%. Um, in some verticals, discounting over 20% may be okay, but you're likely not in one of them. Um, although you probably think you are because everyone's like, ah, oh, we need the sales. Let me discount. The, the problem with discounts is you typically have much higher cancellation rates. Uh, put another way, if you know you want to play this multi-move game, and if you have a discount in play that typically goes over 20%, I should say, even 15%, it starts to increase, 
you start to notice um, basically double the cancellation rate because a lot of those people are just converting for the discount. They're not converting for the actual product. And those are kind of not great customers. So maybe wait a month or two when they become great fits for your product. Fifth point, for upgrades to annual discounts, um, don't use percentages and, and make sure you try offers. So what I mean by that is, Offer up one month or $100 off. That's so much better than X percent off. Um, humans, we don't understand percentages as much as well as we think we do, um, or at least it takes a few seconds. Um, we don't think about it as a physical item, whereas $100 off or a one month off, that, look, that feels physical to us. Um, and also annuals, they see much lower churn rates, typically about 20 to 30% lower churn than uh, monthly churn. Um, and so it's something that you want to optimize for annuals and you want to do that beyond just the initial conversion. Um, a lot of people, they just convert, uh, or they just ask people when they sign up for an annual, that's kind of not the greatest time. Six, should you end your prices in nines or zeros? I get to ask this questions a lot. Um, this is a very small optimization. You shouldn't worry about it. So ending your prices in nines typically evokes a discount brand. Um, and this is something like JCPenney, Macy's, a lot of people studied over the past century, and it makes the customer feel like they're getting a deal because it's like a little bit less than the whole number. When you end in zeros or even fives, you're a luxury brand. Uh, so when we look at this in software products, typically, um, there's not much different once you start getting over a $200 price point, meaning people aren't really reacting to it that much. Um, but it's, it's one of those things you probably have to test, but that's at least the theory. Um, seventh point. You should experiment with your pricing every single quarter. And I know I like really belabored that point already, uh, but the data that you're seeing, if you're looking at the email or the blog post, um, basically those folks who change their prices every, every quarter, they're typically seeing the highest revenue per customer growth rates. Um, and then put another way, if you look at your current ARPU, ACV, however you're measuring revenue per customer, if that number is flat, you're not taking advantage of pricing's power. And that's something that you should be doing. Uh, eighth point, case studies, they do boost willingness to pay about 15 to 20%. Um, so make sure you're using case studies. Even if you're using testimonials, it increases things by about 5 to 10%. Uh, social proof is, is important. Uh, ninth point, design. Having proper design for your product. And again, this does not mean it necessarily looks pretty. It's just good. It's well designed for the customer base you're going after. Um, it can increase willingness to pay by about 20 to 25%. And in the most extreme cases, it can actually increase willingness to pay by about 30%. So just make sure you're taking kind of your user experience, your design seriously. And then the last point, this isn't the last one I kind of get questions about. Integrations, they boost retention and willingness to pay. So put another way, the more integrations a customer is using of your product, they typically have a higher willingness to pay, and they're also retained at a much, much higher rate. Um, this feels super intuitive, obviously, but we actually have some data on it. You can actually increase willingness to pay by about 10 to 30%, depending on the number of integrations. And retention, I believe, is boosted by about 10 to 15% on an absolute basis as well. So it's super, super powerful. And so with that, hopefully you got the core value metrics, who your customer is. And then we went through a bunch of different fun little pieces um, that I often get questions about. And if you have some questions on some of those, obviously let me know. But uh, with that, I hope you're all going to have a good rest of the week here. I've enjoyed my time going through all of this, you know, brain dumping of all this knowledge. Uh, but if you have any other questions, obviously respond to the email. Make sure you're signed up for the email to get all the data and fun stuff at protectthehustle.com. And I will see you all or hear you, see you all. I guess I won't see you, but I will... Uh, I will communicate with you all next week. Have a good rest of the week and have a good weekend. We'll see ya. Thanks for listening. 
If you enjoyed this episode, we'd really appreciate it if you left a five-star review of this podcast, or the equivalent rating wherever you listen or watch. Also, make sure you subscribe to and tell your friends about Protect the Hustle, a podcast from ProfitWell Recur, the largest, fastest-growing media network dedicated to the world of subscriptions. Thank you.